1: Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola.
0: Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you, and the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer, current big law media attorney.
1: And I'm your other host, Mesh Lakhani, pop culture enthusiast. Big fan right now, Paul. My Tom Cruise thing has passed, so now I'm just saying, diehard Peaky Blinders fan, just finished the show. Insanely incredible.
0: I don't know if you're a Peaky Blinders person. I am not a Peaky Blinders person, and I'm late to the party, but I did watch like, Three Mission Impossibles oh on Netflix. Oh my god. Uh late last week. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. I mean, because I got a little hate oh from the Better god. Call Paul fans were like, How have you not seen Mission Impossible? Oh, I am so excited. Listen, the Dubai scene was really cool. Jumping out of the building and the sandstorm approaching. So
1: sick. Yeah. Which wait, did you watch like one and then which ones did you watch? You watched
0: three of them. So which ones did you watch? I watched the three that are on Netflix, so 1, 2, and I think Wait, 4. Wait, you watched
1: 2, the 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 motorcycle one with the, the John Woo? Yeah. Oh,
0: man. I mean, I didn't finish yeah, it. Yeah, no but one should finish yeah. it. That know, was terrible. I know you didn't like it. Did you like it? It was, a, I mean, no. no. I liked 1, one and 4. 1 is so
1: good. 1 is so
0: good. 1 is really good. Uh, oh, this makes me so happy. And even 4, where they're in the Kremlin, and they have like this green screen thing that oh, they can move, and it so projects cool. the whole... Yeah. Like, I don't know how that would ever work in real life, but it's a very cool concept. So anyway, yes, I, I did catch up on that. And as we talked about last week, you finally saw Hustle, which is a really good movie. Dude,
1: Hustle was like blew my mind. It was so much fun. It was so heartfelt, uplifting. I love sports movies. I wish they would make more of them. I mean, talk about cameos.
0: Yeah, and Ben Foster was a solid villain, you know? I mean, at the time, I really, like, hated him in the movie, but that was his role, was to be, like, that smarmy, arrogant guy. And he's good at that. My
1: only issue was his bald prosthetic thing looked very, very fake. Like, why not just give him hair? Is he supposed to look a little sleazy? Just shave your head, bro. That looked fake. I don't know, maybe that's what his head looks like, but.
0: Yeah, man, sometimes you got to shave your head for the role, you know? It's like part of the deal. I remember in one instance in particular, when I was at Marvel, they were casting Nebula before the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. It was actually a test option. So there were three or four candidates and they ended up making an amazing choice with Karen Gillan. She did an amazing job. But I remember at the time, maybe one of the leading candidates and my, I think, personal favorite at the time, she flew out to London to meet with James Gunn. And I think he tried to talk her into shaving her head. But at the end of the day, she ultimately wasn't comfortable with doing it. And she was out of the running for the role. So that just goes to show sometimes you gotta be willing to shave your head.
1: You know, Paul, as myself, if I was an actor, I'd be a method actor. I would shave my head for a role. But, you know, I'm I'm not an actor, so.
0: Yeah, well, you know, that's, Personal decision. Total. Listen, you got to make the sacrifice if you want the role. It's total personal. Christian Bale would shave his head. What about if you were a cone head? That's a
1: prosthetic. This is also true. This is also true. Yeah, but I mean, movie was great. Besides the prosthetic bald head, cameos. How do you get that many people in a movie like that?
0: I think you have to have LeBron James as your producer, basically. I think that's probably how you do it. I mean, maybe you do it during the off season when people are sort of like working out, getting ready. The draft, they're not – because the typical NBA season, players are, like, traveling all the time, right? Like, right. they're flying across the country all the time. So I don't think you could get everyone together for that, but who knows? I think it's probably the magic of LeBron James. Would be my yeah, guess. and just an incredible
1: movie. I mean, the main guy – what's his name?
0: Guacho Hernan Gomez. Yeah,
1: man. He was freaking awesome. He was so good. Adam Sandler just – every. everyone was good in that movie. Everyone. It was such a great movie.
0: I mean, to think in real life, could there be someone that escapes the radar of every scout with the popularity of basketball internationally? You have someone that's like 6'9", can shoot the three, plays defense. I don't think someone like that would go undiscovered, but it's a cool story. Great story. I mean, I wish he almost wasn't an NBA player because it would make it more believable. But yeah, no, it's, it's super cool. Great promotion for the
1: NBA. I've got to imagine the NBA, obviously, to be able to do all the stuff that they did, the NBA had to have some involvement in that, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were coaches, players, you know, you're using the logos of the teams and franchises they are getting in draft camp. The clearance department worked extra hard there, for sure, to get all those permissions in TNT. I mean, they made it look so real. It
1: looked so good. I will watch that movie again. I hope Adam Sandler makes more movies like that. He's a great actor, man. He's a great actor and should do more movies like that. And I'm sure, you know, his deal with Netflix, just crushing it, I mean... Everyone's talking about this movie. Everyone's talking about it. So thanks for the recommendation. I had a lovely time watching it and I'll watch it again.
0: Okay, cool. So YouTube Shorts, Yeah. what was the story there? So
1: this is actually pretty interesting because it's been on the news, it was over Twitter. YouTube has this short form video platform called YouTube Shorts. And now it is performing really, really well. Like it's going against TikTok, it's going against Reels. And the big statement was, More than 1.5 billion users view Shorts content every month, which is amazing. And like YouTube Shorts average more than 30 billion daily views. The Shorts monthly viewership figures come in contrast with TikTok, which is said to surpass 1 billion monthly active users last September. This is according to The Hollywood Reporter. You know, that just goes to show platform is king. If you have something like YouTube, you've got users on there, you have content creators on there, you can launch something and be very, very successful at it. Especially if you're a content creator and let's say, you want to play towards the YouTube algorithm and they're promoting something like shorts. So more people are doing shorts now it's getting pushed. And so, you know, more content creators want to create it. And I think they've just done a good job with that. Like here's another opportunity for you to play in the YouTube algorithm and to get to more users. And I mean, we're talking like 1.5 billion users. It's amazing. It's it's the power of a platform and like what, potential does YouTube have now besides shorts? It's just showing like how great of a business YouTube is within Google and like how many people like consume that. I personally, funny enough, I don't really consume shorts. I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I still am like obsessed with TikTok. I think it's fantastic, but that's really cool for them. That's a big statement.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of seamlessly integrated into YouTube itself. So if you're on YouTube and just sort of watching videos like shorts will come in there, you can kind of select it and watch more, but absolutely it's the platform.
1: YouTube Shorts, doing pretty well. And I guess someone who's having a better week, Seth Green, finally got his board Ape NFT back. Good for him. I mean, it was an expensive get that NFT back. It reportedly paid $300,000. And I think it was like 165 ETH um, to retain ownership of the NFT that was taken from him in a phishing attack where I think he originally paid like 200K.
0: I wouldn't say retain. Retain isn't the right word. He got it back. So... And we talk about this on our June 1st episode. So, you know, for those who are, haven't heard that, you can go back and check it out. He initially had it's board ape 8398, which he named Fred Simeon. He had it in his wallet and then he went to mint something and it was a phishing scam. And the NFT got transferred to someone that bought it nefariously or whatever, duped him into transferring it for basically no fee. And then a user, Darkwing84, Mr. Cheese, bought it claiming to be legitimately for about $200,000 in ether at the time. And so he didn't actually have it for a couple of weeks. And so he repurchased it. He didn't retain yeah, it. Yeah, what I mean is he has it
1: back, but based on a purchase. He has yeah. it back.
0: Based on a purchase, which sucks. Right. So he he bought it back. If you listen to our prior episode, and he was using Fred Simeon as sort of the lead character in White Horse yep. Tavern, which is a, sort of like a quasi-animated, quasi-live-action TV show based off of this Bored Ape or based off a bar where this Bored Ape is a bartender. And he was really dismayed because he sort of spent time and money investing in this show. And then he didn't have the copyright or a license to monetize or exploit that Bored Ape. And so he thought about suing Darkwing to try to get it back. And I think he even threatened that via Twitter. And that would have been a speculative case. I mean, maybe he would have won, maybe he wouldn't have, but it would have taken a lot of time. And at the time, I think we said probably the best thing to do was to work out some deal, and this is what he did. So he bought it back. He paid, as you said, 165 Ether, which Ether's, so volatile these days. I mean, at the time, it might have been worth 300 grand. Today, as of the morning we're recording this, it's probably worth like 160 grand because Ether's, I think, just down below a 1,000. I know. I was shocked. I got my Coinbase alert this morning and I was like, fuck. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a story for another episode, for sure, how to value these coins. But um, he had to pay more Ether than whatever it was purchased for because obviously Darkwing wants to make a little profit on his sale, but it's good that he has it back and he can go back to doing whatever development he was planning on doing uh, for Whitehurst Tavern. And interestingly enough, it's NFT NYC this week. That's right. So I will be going to an event Nice Thursday. Hope I think he's he's planning to be there, so maybe I'll ask him about it. I'm sure. I mean,
1: NFT NYC is still going to be a big week. I've actually, in Williamsburg, there's a bunch of big like signs plastered for Board Ape they have all their events. So, look, he's still in the news, and it's still relevant. Just unfortunate how much it's cost him to already do this show, and not even the production of the show, the character itself. Buying it, then having to rebuy it, and then everything that goes with it. And then now the price of ETH. It's been a rough couple of weeks
0: for Seth Green, but hopefully... Maybe he's just buying the dip, you know? Yeah. In his mind, maybe this stuff all appreciates. Like, maybe Whitehurst Tavern is like an amazingly successful show that leads to merch and other things. And then Fred Simeon becomes a household name. Yeah, and yeah I, I hope it's successful. But your point being, I think your broader point, which we can discuss after the break, is it's been a rough couple weeks for the market and for valuations of things like crypto and, of everything. and equities. Everything, and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything but interest rates have gone uh, down. God, yeah, right? oh
1: so, man, it's brutal. We'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk about just the overall market, how that's affecting media companies
0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA a member FDSE.
1: Okay, Paul, it's like the world is just, oof, man, can't catch a break. Markets had a really, really rough week, had a bounce, but then, you know, had a really rough week after the Fed announced that they were raising rates. Market reacted not so kindly. Crypto markets also having a disaster week with, you know, some of the stuff that's happening with Celsius and um, all these DeFi projects getting insolvent. And there's so many issues right now that's happening that's affecting, in this case, it affected Seth Green and his board eight. But... Or the value of his board ape, eh? but it's also affecting the overall market. And when it comes to media companies specifically, everything's down. Everything's having a tough time. Some of the stats that I have from last week is uh, so markets go down, that is affected media companies like Disney, like Paramount, you know, BuzzFeed was a company that recently went public. The stock is getting hammered pretty badly. It's just, you know, market volatility. We've got a lot of pressure on ad sales. So if you are a content company that is very dependent on ad sales, it's going to be a little rough because obviously not only are we seeing layoffs, we're probably going to see marketing budgets being cut, advertisement budgets being cut, and we'll go from there. I mean, we'll see what happens to all these companies, but media right now is not in favor for the overall market, let alone everything else.
0: Things can't go up forever, right? I mean, I guess that's kind of the lesson here. There was bound to be some sort of correction. Companies generally where people are valuing their future potential tend not to do well in high interest rate environments, right? In inflationary times, because people want more certainty. They want more of like a guarantee than something that could be a home run five years from now. So future looking non-dividend paying stocks tend to not do well in times like this. And the thing that's, I find interesting, and I'm not a crypto expert in terms of like, you know, Bitcoin or anything, I, I do follow it. And I do a lot of work in the space, especially, you know, blockchain and how it relates to copyright. But I always thought people said that Bitcoin and Ether were hedges against inflation, right? Because there's a fixed amount and you can't ever create more than the initial algorithm allows for. So it'll function like gold, but it hasn't, right? It's been really way more like a speculative sort of like tech stock than a hedge against inflation. And I don't know that you have an answer to that. I'm not asking. I'm just kind of saying like.
1: It's the argument that Ether and Bitcoin are the blue chips of crypto. Everything's falling. It's it, you know, it's probably down now from the highs. It's down more than fifty percent. Obviously, we've seen some tech stocks down as far as seventy percent. So you're right, like it's kind of in the same boat as like a tech stock, and you know, the whole store of value argument in the short run doesn't really play true. But a lot of that is also just a lot of selling that's happening right now. And a lot of it has to do with some of these stories that's going around with some of these DeFi players that have been just crushed by the market crushed by insolvency. And we'll see, like, is there gonna be a bounce? It was funny, I was reading on Twitter, that, like, okay guys, I think we hit the bottom. And then this morning <laughs> it was down again and I was like- 19,000. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, oh man, it's broken below 20,000 for Bitcoin, it's broken below 1,000 for Ether. But we'll see, you know, a lot of the times when these, these sellings happen, it's like a capitulation. And so, you know, don't try to catch a falling knife. Obviously there's no investment advice here, but I've been in it since 2017. So for me, like, I, you know, I still see it as up. These are short-term things. Uh, hopefully we'll see things progress from here. But yeah, when it comes to media, media is just having a tough time. Obviously, there's a lot of shakeups that are happening. And I mean, we talked about Netflix last week, trying to figure out new revenue streams. In this case, you know, Disney's a stock that has not performed well. It's been crashing. Like there's been some shakeups in the company
0: itself, right? Yeah, so last week, Peter Rice was the former head of Disney TV was let go. And I think people, industry insiders and Disney insiders were kind of scratching their head over that because by all accounts, he was widely respected and and well-liked among his team and the people who he sort of oversaw and the content that he made was doing well, right? So the streaming content was doing well and he had, I think, almost three years left on his deal. So to get fired is just not really how things are done at that level in Hollywood. Normally, if you wanted to go in a different direction, if someone was underperforming, you would probably give them a different title, maybe give them a special project, sort of you know transition them out of having a meaningful role where they get to work on something. It doesn't really look like they got fired, but they're basically, they, they have no more meaningful responsibility. And that's usually how these things are handled. So the fact that he was fired with, with no notice is, causes some people to wonder, is this a sign of something more happening? Let's just say, When stocks are falling and investors are spooked about the future prospects of a company, it's not a a great time to be an executive, right? right? Because sure, when stocks are going up and your companies are performing and the profits are growing, it's like bonus after bonus, big contract or whatever, it's good. And the underbelly of that is sometimes when it's not going well, you can get canned. And that's what happened here. I, I don't know if it's anything bigger than that. It remains to be seen.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things too. It's like investors want to see, is it a result of stock is not performing well, people get fired, and then do investors get spooked even more? Or is that supposed to be like, hey, we need to like clean up the company and you know figure some things out to get the stock back up but this is kind of the problem with stocks in general though it's like all these short term things that need to happen because everyone's so worried about you know where the stock price goes so at the end of the day putting your long vision goggles on is restructuring or bringing new people in better for the company and where it might go from here i just for the second time i've read through michael ovitz's book one of the co-founders of caa I've read Who is Mike Ovitz? My second read-through, and there's this whole section on Disney and like when Michael Eisner was running it and the issues that Mike Ovitz and Michael Eisner had with each other, and then Michael Eisner and Bob Iger had with each other. Egos definitely come into play.
0: Yeah, and, and Disney Wars too. I mean, Michael Eisner was really not in favor of Bob Iger taking over. He was right, like... Right, he, right, And he should have been Bob Iger's biggest champion, and he, right. he was anti-Bob Iger. He basically was like, trying to sandbag his whole ascension. Yeah, yeah. Maybe because he viewed him as a threat. As a threat, yeah. And then, boom, like, Bob Iger had 15 years as, like, maybe the best, most successful CEO in Disney's history.
1: Yeah, because in the book, it says that Michael Eisner asked Michael Ovitz to fire Bob Iger. Um, And Michael Ovitz, like, fought for Bob Iger. And, right, yeah, it it is interesting, because a lot of times, egos play a lot into why bad decisions, but sometimes good decisions, get made at companies, but... A lot of times, someone is just like either feeling threatened or they disagree on something. I mean, there's so many times that we've seen CEOs who just might not have the same vision, you know, and then eventually they get replaced and, and the company goes places. Say whatever you want about Disney. Like, they've lasted this long. I'm sure they'll figure it out and do something. They've done it before. And they've got great content. I mean, the content's still coming out, right? Like, you know, you got the star, you got Obi-Wan, you got the new Marvel
0: show, like there's a lot of stuff. They, happening. they do have great content. They have a lot of intellectual property and they have a ton of talent within their ranks. Again, if you look
1: long-term, things suck right now. They're not ideal. I mean, everything's getting smashed. It's not nice to see if you're looking at stocks all day and looking at markets all day. But I mean, and that goes into how do you perform in a stock market in this environment? One of the topics that we want to discuss is SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, where essentially it's a shell company that buys a private company. And the shell company is already public and it buys a private company. And that allows that private company to be a public company. And that is through the SPAC.
0: Yeah, we should talk about it after the break, right? Sorry, good call.
1: So Paul, we were just talking about the markets, we were talking about SPACs, the special purpose acquisition company, and one of the companies in Hollywood, which is a visual studios company, a visual studios
0: effects company, recently canceled their SPAC. So DNag is a VFX company. They're one of like probably the top 10 or so largest VFX companies that isn't owned by a studio in and of itself. Like Pixar technically would probably do their own VFX work. and. Disney Animation probably does their own VFX work, but basically what they do is they create shots, whether animated or in live action, that would almost be like impossible to create in real life or incredibly expensive or really risky. So things like explosions or destroying a city or flying through a can you know, So like or asthma. Right right, 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 right. Whatever, right, whatever, right. whatever okay. it is. Like things, like these fantasy lands that couldn't exist anywhere but in a computer unless you were going to spend, like, a ton of money right. to create the right. set. And usually, you know, they'll enhance things like green screens and costumes. And, like, the original Jurassic Park was animatronic. But then since then, it's been CGI. And is that because it's it's more, it's, like, economically more efficient to do that over, like, building? I think that's a part of it. I think it's a couple factors. It's timing, right? So everyone thinks, like, these things move according to, like, this linear, predictable path. But... Maybe there's delays or you have to shoot things in different orders or different sequences. And maybe there's a scene that you thought you were going to be able to shoot 80% of it on set or on location. But you, for whatever reason, you didn't have the costumes or you didn't have the right locations or whatever. So you have to fix it in post or actually do a lot of it via VFX. So there could be a lot of factors for why something would be done via VFX. But just understand that it's typically cost or scheduling considerations. And then again, you know, when this world of franchises, like, for example, the companies that created Optimus Prime or Asgard or whatever, or the- The upside you know, down in like Stranger
1: Things, which actually this company did do the effects for- Right, DNEG did yeah. Stranger.
0: So you're going to go back to them because they're going to have sort of the, the models, the proprietary algorithms to recreate that. So, for example, if you have ILM, Industrial Light & Magic, to create the Transformers, you're not going to go to their competitor and have them rebuild them from scratch right. if you want to make the sequel. Sure. You're going to go back to them and say- start with, you know, whatever latest version of Optimus Prime that you had and then enhance sure. it this way. So VFX is huge dollars. We're talking nine figures per something like a Marvel movie. And so recently, DNEG signed a three hundred fifty million dollar multi-year deal with Netflix. So they do Stranger right. Things and a ton of other right. Netflix shows and movies. And there's a handful of VFX companies that are sort of elite. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic, which was founded by George Lucas back in the day. Weta was Peter Jackson's company, which he started for Lord of the Rings, but now they do other things. DNEG, Animal Logic, Framestore. So d I remember when I was at Marvel, I was the lead VFX attorney for a couple of years and I was working, I think it was Thor Dark World. We were negotiating with d and 99% of these negotiations are just sort of like, you're over the phone, you're trading documents, you're negotiating. It's not really that in person, but Matt Holbin from d who was based in London, but happened to be in LA, actually like took the time to meet with me when we were doing their deal. And I appreciated that because- most people wouldn't put that kind of time in. Marvel does good deals, so it ended up all working out. But I do remember him from that interaction. And so d and Egg is a private company. And actually, they won an Oscar. It wasn't like seven Oscars, most recently for Tenet and Inception. And so they work a lot with Christopher Nolan. They've done a lot of Marvel movies. They have a relationship with Netflix as well, as we talked about So they're a legit company, but they're private. And they were thinking this is an opportunity to maybe go public through a SPAC. And so for those that don't know, SPACs are, as you said, special purpose acquisition companies, blank check companies. Basically, it's an alternative to going public via IPO. So if a private company, SPAC is basically like you invest in a manager or a management team and you say, there's a team that says, "Hey, we're gonna go find a company in media, or we're gonna go find a team in sports, or we're gonna go find a team in energy, or whatever." And they have a couple years, maybe two years, to basically invest the money. It's like that a they blank raise. check;
1: like you don't know what you're getting into.
0: Right, exactly. You don't know what you're getting. It, you're and and if they don't find a deal that the shareholders approve within the time period, then they have to return the money. But there's a strong incentive for the management team, the sponsors to find a deal because they get a big chunk of equity if they do. So this is, like I said, not an investment podcast and not investment advice, but I think historically SPACs and we, my law firm does a ton of SPAC deals. 2020, 2021 was like the most active period. There were so many of them. Hundreds of billions of dollars in SPAC deals. And and they don't necessarily all close. And this DNA example is one where they weren't able to find a deal in time or the company they were going to merge with, I believe they were called Sports Ventures Acquisition Corp., was supposed to merge with DNEG at a valuation of $1.7 billion, and they just mutually decided to call it off. And I think the reason is, if you sign this deal, let's say they signed this deal eight months ago, right? The market has changed so much in terms of people's appetite for yep. risk and just like speculating on investments that- they're not going to be able to close the deal if they needed more money or if they needed investors to sort of ultimately approve this. They probably didn't think it was likely to happen because the market isn't as exuberant as it was last summer. So the deal fell through. It's a
1: very tough time to raise money. And it's also that the SPACs that were really hot during COVID have not performed well. And so that's also just not a good tell for like SPAC. And I'm an investor in two companies that went public via SPAC. I was an early investor in both. Both of them went public via SPAC. The lockups are pretty tight. It's not like, hey, this is a public company, now I can sell my shares. They're both down like over 90%. It's brutal. It's brutal for me personally. But I mean, and again, that's the overall market. A lot of companies are down, but SPACs, it's been a tough run. And, And this is just a very, very, very tough market to raise money in and not just like for SPACs. And everything in the private market right now is really tough. Everything from early stage to growth stage to later stage, all investors right now are like halting. They're taking their time. They want valuations to correct and come down a bit and they don't want to overpay for things. So it's just a tough market to do any type of capital raising right now. And everyone's feeling it from, hey, I just started a company and I want to raise some money from VC to, hey, I want to go public via spec. Hey, I want to go public via IPO. All of it is very challenging right now.
0: Right. Well, and it's a part of it is like the cost of money, right? And interest. And When money is essentially free because the Federal Reserve has, you know, central bank rates at zero, you're like, okay, investing in debt is not going to necessarily pay me anything, right? Like a 0% return. So it's the TINA acronym. There's no better alternative. (laughs) So people are like, okay, I'll take a shot with this back. You know, they have someone who was really successful in media in the past and they might have a great track record. So, yeah, I don't really know what I'm buying. But if I don't like it, I don't have to approve the deal in a couple years, I don't want to miss out on something and just have my money sitting in the bank account, you know, getting diluted by inflation. So, and now the market's changed because money's, it costs money to borrow. You have to go back to more fundamental based investing. Like what is this business? What does it do? What's the future prospects? What are the cash flows going to be? What are the risks? Asking those questions as opposed to sort of investing based on, you know, like we work, right? Like didn't the, I haven't seen the series. It's so good.
1: It's so good.
0: Didn't the son of of SoftBank invested like billions of dollars based on a 12-minute conversation without even evaluating? It took more than,
1: I think, you know, obviously in the show, it took time because basically... SoftBank didn't want to invest in WeWork unless they felt like they were a software company. In which case, Adam Newman was like, we're a software company now. I'm like, hey, let's invest in engineers and tech and stuff. And you know, pump, 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 pump the price up where you end up being valued at $45 billion for essentially what is a real estate company. And that's what it was. It's not like a bad business. They were just acting like a software company right. that was going to be a $45 billion company. And then you know, the market corrects it. And it's significantly lower than that. Um, now, and I think we're in that time now where everything comes down, everything corrects. And so what we might see is that instead of companies going public or, you know, going public via SPAC, we might see consolidation in the space now. We might see more M&A activity where, you know, people who do have cash on their balance sheets are looking for deals and they can get those deals
0: now. So DNag, to be clear, yeah, the deal didn't close. So they're not going to go public in this SPAC, but they're still a very successful, company totally. with great prospects in terms of doing more VFX deals, doing what they do well, yeah. right? So doing more shows for Netflix, doing more animated movies, animated shows, doing more superhero movies. They're going to keep doing what they do. Yeah. And their owners aren't going to be able to cash out in right. this spec the way right. they maybe thought right. they would a couple months right. ago. But that doesn't mean that they can't, cash out later yeah. on or when the cycles turn yeah. back around. So it's not like a, ba- I mean, it's it's unfortunate if you were running DNEG and you thought this was your chance to cash out, but they just missed the boat. The markets turned, they're very fickle and we're in a down cycle now. So it's not, it's not the right time.
1: And a good thing for the company to make that decision because If you're an investor in the company and if you're the owners of the company, it's not favorable for you to go public via SPAC and then, you know, potentially see the market, you know, because once you're public, it's what the market decides you're worth, right? And so you could potentially get a better deal if you wait, or, you know, you just continue building your business and you choose the right time, or maybe there's an acquisition offer that's better and it's all cash or with stock. There's so many other options. It's not the end of the world. d will live
0: to fight another day, that's for sure. And they're going to keep chugging.
1: Well, dude, I mean, one of the big headlines for them was that they did Stranger Things season four and Stranger Things season four is, I don't know if you've seen it. It's the best season, in my personal opinion. It's my favorite season. It's so well done. The
0: effects are like Right. And they, you know, props to them. They did a great job. Well, Netflix has a lot riding on Stranger Things 4, right? So they weren't going to miss with Squid Game. Right. Or with Stranger Things 4. And so... I can't think of a thing that d did that was bad, right? Like, everything everything you read, like Dune, Tenet, which I didn't really understand, but I liked visually, Interstellar. Yeah, visually was cool. I mean, they did Interstellar too? Yeah. Oh, man, like... They do a lot of Christopher Nolan movies
1: because they're London-based. Yeah, and like Christopher Nolan visually, it's just so beautiful. Like, I have a real appreciation for, like, great visual effects, you know, as a consumer of it. So I hope they get what they deserve.
0: Yeah, we we don't know how it's going to go, but um, it'll be interesting, and we'll definitely keep you up to date about you know some of the cool stuff that's happening and interesting stuff behind the scenes. Absolutely, Paul, thank you as always.
1: And uh, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Spotify, on Apple, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us on Better Call Paul, the podcast on Instagram. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, Marco Siler, Gonzalez, with assistant producer, Justin Sanchez, and assistant research producer, Haas Nasser, Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.
0: Take care.